Live from Studio B in the Professional Stamp Experts Infotainment Complex, this is the award-winning stamp show here today, episode number 282, brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of philately. This is Tom. This is Cash. This is Mark. This is Albert. This is Becca. And Scott will be here at some point. He's uh, on a phone call. He's busy. He's busy. We have multiple studios? Yes. Yes. Scott is apparently in Studio A. (laughs) (laughs) Greetings to our newest stamp show here today member, Lori G. from Grants Pass, Oregon. Your membership certificate is in the mail. Did you know that Grants Pass was named in honor of General U.S. Grant's 1863 victory at Vicksburg? Well, you probably did know. But did you know that Grants Pass originally had an apostrophe S, but the apostrophe was dropped after 1900? Is that true? That's true. It's yeah, you do. It's Grants. So, like many Grants, instead of Grants possessive, it's Grants multiple. So, Grants Pass. Who did he pass at Vicksburg? Yeah. <laughs> General Pemberton. <laughs> this week we are discussing stamp auctions. Two weeks ago we had David Kugel from Kelleher Stamp Auctions as a guest and discussed a man submitting his father's collection to auction. This week we will be discussing the other side of auctions, buying. Buying stamps at auction is a fun and simple process that most buyers shy away from. Yeah, I can't understand them half the time, so I wouldn't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Sold. I'm like, what did I just buy? A cow. Yeah. <laughs> they drop, you know, 20 head of steer at your front door. Yeah, why aren't stamp auctions run like those cattle auctions? Are they not? <laughs> no. They should be. That would be far more entertaining. It would be. They'd get through the auction a lot faster, I bet. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, when uh, Albert starts talking, we need to ask how long his, actu- uh, his auction lasted. Well, many times you can get better deals from buying directly from the auctioneer, but when buying stamps at auction, you should be open-minded. Do not buy anything unless you've looked at it, and if you have questions, then ask the auctioneer or a member of the staff. <laughs> Auctioneers are agents for the sellers, not the buyer. Their purpose is to sell the stamps at as high a price as they possibly can. This increases their income from both the seller's commission and the buyer's premium. But more importantly, it enables them to compete with other auctioneers for future consignments. All auction reports benefit the seller and the auctioneer, not the buyer. That always seemed sticky to me that the auctioneers get to charge on both ends. Yeah. And it's uh, relatively new. I'd say in about 1999, 19, uh, 19, I was going to say 1995. What happened is, what happened is the major auction firms, Christie and uh, Sotheby's, started originally. Um, it originally started in Europe. 
and then spread over here. And originally a buyer's premium was 10% of the hammer price, and then it's gone up from there. And some hammer, some auction, some uh, buyer's premiums are now as high as uh, 20%. Yeah. In stamps and in other fields like art or uh, cars or something like that, it's like 30%. Yeah. Well, and then the buyer, the seller's premium ranges literally from negative 5%. I mean, they could actually be paying you to take your stuff to I have seen as much as 25%. So if you have a auction company that charges some poor person 25% is the seller and 20% is the buyer, they're getting 45% of the purchase price of the stamp. Yeah, it's made it's made if you sell an auction like I do as well as purchase things, it's made it a much tougher field because the auction company is taking both bo- both sides of the of the of a piece. And it's um, it makes you have to be much more imaginative and have to buy things. Uh, I prefer, frankly, to buy things at the stamp shows and from private parties because I don't have to pay the uh, buyer's premium. Well, yeah. However, because I represent clients and I'm a, an auction agent, that means that that uh, some a lot, many times the best merchandise, like I just got back from the William Gross sale of five and ten cent 1847s. That was held at Robert A. Siegel Auction Galleries. That's U.S. number ones and number twos. Right. Yeah. Um, they had they had the, they had some of the best uh, merchandise in there, but they also had one of the things that I would tell you you must do is you must at, read the terms of sale first, <laughs> because and it, it's a lot it's a lot of fine print, but for instance in that particular sale, any lot that had five items or more in it was not returnable for any cause. Yep. So, which is very unusual because normally, the, normally if you buy something, you might buy something that has eight items and they're each worth about five hundred dollars, and each of them is subject to a certificate. These weren't. Yeah. So um, I tried to buy. I bought one lot of railroad covers. Had twenty six number one and number two railroad covers, for uh, which I paid I paid uh, nine thousand dollars for which I thought was a reasonable price. But the large lot of uh, regular covers had a cover in there that I had seen pictured in the American Philatelic Society magazine in 1954. But when I saw it, I said, I asked, I asked uh, two people in the house at the, for the auction company, I said, why is it in the large lot? And their, their cryptic comment is, well, you know what are in large lots, things that, that can't get certificates. And I said, okay, you said enough. So the lot, the lot brought, um, I, I figured everything else for $11,000. So I figured the, the lot for basically nothing. And the lot brought an 11 5 yep, so, yep. so it's, it's, um, so reading the terms of sale is really important. It'll tell you, it'll tell you that, um, and that's true with all auctions. That includes country auctions and includes cattle auctions and everything else. Uh, it'll tell you, uh, what they're willing to stand behind the product or whether they're not willing to stand behind the product. I've gone to auctions in Hawaii, for instance, where they stand behind nothing. They just want your money. But you, so you have, when you look at it, you gotta, you're, you're buying it as is. Well, you know, we're part of PSE here. And uh, a lot of auction companies, if a stamp has a certificate from a company, then it's not returnable if another company says, oh, they made a mistake. And so they will sell, you know, a stamp that has, you know, a very old APS cert on it or something. This is, 
I'm bringing up an example of uh, an auction that was a while ago. It was a U.S. number two. It had a very, very old APS certificate. And uh, it was for unused. And the person brought it to us here. We stuck it in the VSE. It had a cancel. And he could not return it because it had a prior certificate, even though it was a very old certificate. The hitch is, is that this was not a big auction company. If you, buy, if you did something like this with Siegel, they would take it back even if it said it's not returnable. But this auction company said, sorry, nope. It's like, well, okay, I'm not dealing with you anymore. There's a famous stamp run that's still running around. I know it was because uh, a famous New York dealer had it recently and was complaining about it. A Scott, an unused Scott 142, a 24-cent banknote grill, uh, unused with a certificate from the PF certificate from the 1960s or even 1950s that I had first seen in Los Angeles in the mid-1970s. And... Uh, Interestingly, it was discussed. Uh, it was discussed within the last two weeks, and and uh, my comment was was I said this item has come into both the Philatelic Foundation and PSC at least once in the in, since then, and I know in both cases we would not maintain me would not maintain the opinion. So um, yeah, that's one of the things. Whenever you see, uh, well, this was at actually a coin show. But they had a $4 Colombian that had a, it, it, that was a PF cert because it was a very old cert before PSE even existed. And it had a PF cert that said mint never hinged. And I flipped it over and it clearly had a thin that was filled with glue. It was an old cert. Somebody between, because the PF never would have missed this. I mean, it was an obvious thing. Since then, somebody had damaged the stamp, but the certificate still rode along with it. And I go, this stamp isn't, you know, never hinged. It's got regumming to it. And the guy goes, oh, it's got a cert. <laughs> it is like, yeah, well, so what? But not an accurate one. Yeah, not an accurate one. Most auction companies now will state that uh, if the certificate is within a certain number of years, in the, in the case of Siegel's, it's five years, some... In the case of Kelleher, it's seven, um, but if it's if it's if it's older than that, you can re, you can resubmit the item to get a certificate. But if it's but if it's within that seven or five year period, the item is being sold so, subject to the opinion that's on the certificate. Yep. And um, that's why it's sometimes. I know we're we're having we're dealing with the COVID pandemic, but I will tell you that. I was very happy to have viewed uh, some of the items that I did over the, three weeks ago because I was happy not to buy them <laughs> because of because the items did not look like the certificates. Many stamps that have older PF certificates, um, which just say OG or um, um, the stamp, and then they're sold as never hinged. The stamp has been brushed or has been, yeah. uh, um, and then. And then uh, that was a disservice that the uh, expertizing companies did that they didn't give certificates for never hinge for a short period of time. And it really was a big disservice. I mean, this was a long time ago. It was, I think, the 90s, right? The early 90s. 
Well, actually, before 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 the early '90s, nobody gave. He never yeah. never hints. APS used to give. Um, APS used to give when it said mint. That mean it meant it was really never hinged. I remember buying a Hawaiian number five that really was never hinged, and it had an APS certificate from the '70s. And I that stamp later sold for many times catalog because oh, yeah. it was because it was really never hinged. Um, but the Philatelic Foundation, despite the fact that a number of us who were working at the time as as consultant experts said, "You've got it." When never hinged became popular in the late '70s. We just said you've got to state the opinion. Well, they didn't do it. They didn't do that until really the early '90s. So it was about a 15-year period. Yeah, and it was it was terrible. And we're seeing uh, we're, we see we think we see things today that um, um, one of the things that's very apparent. I was shown a stamp by Scott recently that had a certificate that said it was never hinged, and I looked at it and I said. I said, if I said if you want to be nice about it, you can call it pH. I think the stamp's been regum because you, because the brush strokes went <laughs> went vertically, and this stamp, the only way that the gum striations go is horizontally. And so I just said, uh, that's. I said I I would be very unhappy handling that stamp. Now, if you have a good relationship with an auction company, one of the things you can do is, if you don't mind paying for shipping costs. They will FedEx the item out for out for you, and then you'll, you'll get one day to look at it, and then you can return it. Yep. But and that it is a costly thing, but if you're buying thousand dollar items, that's a good thing to consider. The other thing you can do is you can you can retain an agent to look at it. An auction agent represents you, the bidder, does not represent the auction house. Um, sometimes during an auction, you hear that the bid gets raised after the lot gets closed, and that's because the auction agent has a legal responsibility to make sure that the that if he has two or two or more bids on the same lot, that it goes for one increment over the second highest bid that he has. So the lot may only go for a thousand, but the agent may have a three thousand and a five thousand dollar bid. So the so the next increment it must sell at is thirty two hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, and a lot of people see that happen at an auction and it freaks them out because they'll have like a exactly like you said you know a stamp sells for four hundred and fifty dollars and the uh, auctioneer says sold and then the auction agent will say eight hundred twenty five dollar sale price and it'll show up as an eight hundred twenty five dollar sale price because the two people and it's illegal for the uh, auction agent to say excuse me there's a second person or anything like that it's illegal for them. That's collusion. You'll go to jail for it. They're, well, you don't want. Go, they don't go to jail, but stamp collectors have been smacked very, very hard uh, for doing things that seem just obvious that you should be able to do this, and the government comes up and says, "I'm sorry, no, you're not allowed to do this." So you will see auction agents doing this. It's, they're not trying to rip anybody off. If they don't do it, they will get smacked by the government. That's true. Um, uh, now you you brought up something about do not collude. There was a very fair, famous case that uh, in a number of stamp dealers got involved with a collusion at all the New York auctions. Oh, and yeah. they, they ended up in they ended up uh, in a famous case, and they had to make a settlement with the government. So. 
all the people who bid in those sales, including myself, got a check in the early 2000s from this. And oh, it was, really? Yeah, it was me. Well, this, the it was either that or some people that that uh, some famous people would have gone to jail. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no. Uh, We're not going to say any names, but you're talking about people who are at the height, the very top of the philatelic marketplace. Right. And mostly, and mostly on from the wholesale side. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. What so. basically they were doing is, uh, like, let's say me and Albert were bidding on a U.S. number one in the growth sale, and I'd say, oh, I was going to bid five hundred bucks for that, and he goes, Oh, you're crazy! I was going to bid eight hundred. And he go, Well, if you're bidding eight hundred, I won't bid. And so then the item sells for four hundred dollars. Well, it would have been for it would have sold for five hundred and fifty because I would have bid Albert up. So the seller lost $150 because I wouldn't bid against Albert. That's the collusion. It, it seems like it's a no-brainer. It's like, well, we're friends. You know, we, we don't want to bid against each other. But they came down on him. Man, did they come down on him. Well, I think, I think the, the, what really um, made the case there was that they arranged payments amongst each other. Yeah. <laughs> well, where they yeah, said, so. okay, I, I, I said you know, 150 bucks because you didn't bid, so I'm paying you 75 of it. And, you know... Yeah, I think- <laughs> there, was, there, there was sort of a quid pro quo there. Yeah, that right. gets kind of into the uh, the bribery end yeah. of things, almost. Yeah, they held their own private auction before the... Yeah, it was, it was, it was an amazing thing. Now, Kickbacks. Um, now, if you buy an item and you're not sure, or you, it doesn't have a recent certificate, or when you get it, you don't like the condition of the stamp... You are there is a you are allowed to put the item on extension, which means that's an extension for time for an expert opinion. Most auction houses will ask you to return the item and they'll send it in themselves. The reason is is that that way they control the item and they can tell their consigner that well we have control of the item. It's just going to the APS or PSC or the Philatelic Foundation and it gets sent right back to us. So. Um, um, that's and frankly, in, in most major sales now, auction companies would would rather pre-certify items. Um, I know here at PSE we've gotten a number of we've gotten a number of we uh, get them all the time. Right, we get sometimes five hundred items yeah. at a time. As a matter of fact, just as a note to people out there, the expertizing companies in like the nineteen sixties, they were. Like they would identify the stamp. You you know you wanted a number one D. You know you had to send it to them, and they would go in their reference collection, and they would tell you what the color varieties were. That's really not the market today. I mean, we still get that stuff. Obviously, we still get that stuff. But I would say easily ninety five percent of our business is condition not identification. They're not asking us what stamp this is. They're asking us, is this stamp regummed, reperfed, or repaired? And and that's the real thing that occurred. And it occurred in the early 2000s where technology advanced enough where we can see reperfs, regums, and repairs a world better than they could in the 1970s. I mean, we see stuff from the 1970s that to the naked eye look great. You put it in, and again, this is why it's tough for a person to do it. We put it in an $85,000 VSC machine. 
And all of a sudden we see cancels and we see repairs and we see different things that people did to stamps. It's cheap now. I mean, back in the 1970s, you paid a lot of money for a certificate. Today, certificates are relatively cheap because we're using technology more than experts. But the experts for the 10% that needs identification are invaluable. But again, that's, you know, 90% of your business's condition, 10% needs the experts. But... But please, if you buy, if you buy something in an auction, please make sure that you read read the how read the terms of sale as far as how the auction company wants to handle extensions. Oh yeah, and That's, what yeah. and what company? Right. I mean, you know, they you say, well, my uncle Bob, you know, he knows everything about regums. I want to send it to them. The auction company is going to say, no, you're going to send it to PSE P, uh, or the really PSE or the PF. That's the those are the only those are the only two which yeah. uh, which have have the weight. Uh, unfortunately, the APS has had a number of problems in the last in uh, recent years. Uh, it's partially because they're. The number of available experts has been going down just because of the aging of the collector community. Well, another thing about the APS is, you know, like I said, 90% of our business is condition, 10% is identification. The APS, it's exactly the opposite. People are sending them stamps for identification. So they're not getting, let's say, a skill level of being able to detect this stuff. Also, because they have much less being submitted, they can't buy the equipment. I mean, like I said, the equipment is really expensive. You know, we have one, PF has one. That's kind of it. Smithsonian has one. Yeah, Smithsonian has one. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually... But they I, have even more. <clears throat> I wish Scott was here because um, the history of how the equipment came was uh, there was... The, a VSE machine and they were using it for the autographs for baseball cards and football cards and, you know, baseballs and everything that's autographed. And they would put it in the VSE machine. And Scott was the one who went to the management and said, Randy was using it in the early two thousands when I first worked at PSE. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, okay. The VSE was there. And cause I remember, standing over Randy's shoulder going, dude, what are you looking at? It's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was that was in the early 2000s. They were already using the VSC. Yeah, so... Uh, so I mean, it might have been Randy, not Scott, but I was going to say it, it does... The VSC at PSC does predate Scott. It, it was it was not... you. It was not originally for stamps. It was a technology that the stamp collecting community acquired later, and it just blew the roof off everything, you know. People who are faking stamps today have a huge hurdle that they have to get over that they didn't have to get over in the 1970s. Well, it's just like any forensics. I mean, when you talk about things like forgery and stuff, these advancements made made it so much harder for people to forge or counterfeit checks, currency, yeah, things like that. You know, so the same 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 rule applies here. Well, the VSE machine was used to detect fake right. checks, fake well, that's, signatures. That's what it is. It is yeah. a forensics machine. Yeah. Now, one of the things that's changed in the last twenty years is that now everybody, everybody, when they run an auction, there's people, there's 
normally there's people on the floor, but there's also everybody's bidding online. And the problem with that is, is that it takes much longer. Oh God, does it, it, it take it, a lot longer? It, it, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, sometimes an auction company can only call 50 lots an hour, and if you have uh, if you have 800 lots, you're there. Um, you can figure on being there for all day. Yeah, and by all day, uh, all day like calendar day. Yeah, 10, you're there like, until midnight, from t- ten in the morning until eleven or twelve at night. Yeah, Rumsey sales are remarkable that they're they're like that. Yeah, when everybody was on the floor, you know, you hold up your number. And by the way, the the uh, old um, Dick Van Dyke show where he scratches his nose and stuff—that's not how a vote or a bidding goes. You hold up a, a placard, paddle. A, paddle. a paddle, has a number on it. Your number four hundred three, and the auctioneer just uh, sits there and points to paddles and gives numbers. And so it's really, really quick. But the hitch is, okay, paddle number 403 for $500. We got a bid on the internet, 550 We have 575 We have a bid on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Usually there's some sort of audible audible thing at the at the live auction where you hear a ding or something at the at the computer that the uh, that the assistant is running oh well so. that's the terrible one is you know a person will bid seven hundred dollars for the item person on the floor bid seven twenty uh, seven fifty and then the person on the computer doesn't lower their number or they didn't don't say i don't do, they just don't bid and so you have to sit there and it's like Sold. It, are we? Are oh, we, hold are, on. We got another video. You know, it's, are we dealing with computer latency and and just the internet speeds in general, or did you stop bidding? Yeah, exactly. At at the gross sale, the Siegel Company is changing over from Stamp Auction Network to another auction auction bidding company. So they actually had both on. Mm. So they actually were. They actually would identify where the bids were coming from. Yep. From from each of the from each of the uh, bidding services, or if it was on the floor. Well, that's the great thing about the phone bidders. The phone bidders, you know, you can call up and say, "I'm going to bid up to seven hundred dollars," and they'll go five hundred, five twenty-five, five fifty, all the way up, and you won't have any of the delay. I think that there needs to be an auction where you know, or, excuse me, a piece of software where you put in your number and you follow it up and then it says something like, you've been outbid, click here to bid again, otherwise your your bid kind, is gone. Kind of almost like the maximum bid thing on like eBay. Exactly. You you call up something and it's a, you know, it's starting at a dollar and you go, uh, okay, cat value, yeah, I'm willing to pay five bucks for that. And then it'll put it in for you at a dollar. And then if someone bids you up, it'll put you in at the next bid until yeah. it reaches your maximum bid. And it's just like, okay, I'm done. Okay, you've been outbid. Do you want to increase your bid? Yes or no? Done. Yeah. Now, I don't know if there's a hard and fast rule, but it seems that uh, in auctions I've gone to live, uh, when you're competing with the Internet, if there's a tie bid, I think the auctioneer will more often than not accept the floor bid as the winning bid as opposed to the one on the internet even though the internet bid might have been made earlier 
that that is true because it's when the bid is submitted to the auction. So if you submit a bid to the auction and you say, you know, I I want the auction to be my agent, which I never like doing, but people do do it. And they'll say, uh, you know, person will go $300 and they'll say, I already have $300 on the book. That means that that one predates yours. Right. (laughs) But if it's on the internet, that doesn't occur. Right. But see, if that's the case and someone's already got it at 300, why don't they just open it at 300? Why wait till it gets there and someone goes 250 and it's like, okay, and people, now we have a bid for 300? Because people hate the auctions that do that. You know, you put in your bid form and you put $125 and all of a sudden you bought the stamp for $125. There's a number of notorious stories that oh, I yeah. can tell where somebody. You know, um, the item the item's opening it for for one hundred dollars, and you give a bid of two thousand, and somehow the lot you, you, they knock the lot down to you for nineteen hundred, and you go, who is the underbidder? <laughs> there wasn't any. Yeah. Well, it was the curtain in the back of the room. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a famous story. I've actually been sitting on the floor when the auctioneer did that. I was, I turned around to see who I was bidding against because there wasn't any internet bidding at the time. And there was literally nobody else in the room <laughs> behind me. Everybody was in front of me. That was a very famous uh, Los Angeles auction that no longer exists anymore, so I can talk about them. And they talked all the time about uh, being outbid by the water cooler. <laughs> and there was one. There was one time when he was caught by it. You know, he's bidding against you know the window or the light fixture or something like that. And he turns around and he goes, who was I bidding against? And the auctioneer said, that person over there and that person who he pointed to goes, well, I wasn't bidding. And he goes, okay, I'm going to reopen it. And it goes and, you know, it was sold for $400. And the second time it sold for $200. And the auctioneer goes, that's your last lot. You're out of here. I will not have you intimidating the other bidders. And it's like he wasn't intimidating the other bidders. He was intimidating the water cooler, maybe. <laughs> with man, with with places like eBay and things like that, I prefer to use a sniping program of some sort. I am just because, um, if, especially if it's something that I really want, where it might be it might be opening. There have been times where it's opened up for a hundred dollars, and I'm I've literally bid five thousand dollars and bought it for many many. You know, a lot less yeah. for like four, five, six hundred dollars, but I just don't want to lose it. Well, that's the thing is people trust eBay. People trust Kelleher. People trust Siegel. People are not going to trust Joe's auction house out of Tampa, Florida. And I apologize if there's a Joe's auction house <laughs> in why, Tampa, Florida. I just made that up. <laughs> why not? You, you can sell some great stuff for really high prices in those auctions. <laughs> Because the auctioneers and the bidders don't know what they're doing. <laughs> well, a, a good example of where you, you, you're put in a funny situation when uh, one of my major clients was a man named Charles Peach III. And we Famous. So, we sold his Hawaii collection in two sales at Charles Shreve. But he, di- he died in the early 2000s of a, um, of a heart attack while he was uh, at La Costa and taking an exercise class, ironically. But they sold they sold the they sold a lot of the Hawaiiana at a small public auction. So I I flew to Hawaii and went went on the floor and spent bought things there, 
And I was glad that I did because I bought a number of things for, I bought a, there's a, there's a very famous set of books that was uh, produced by the U.S. government about the birds of Hawaii. And uh, those color plates were used to make many of the, of the uh, postcards, the mm. picture postcards. And so I had bought the book for $3,000 at a Sotheby's sale. I paid, I think, 900 or $850 for the same book when it was sold. And there was a number of very, very scarce Hawaii, Hawaiian prints, prints of Hawaiian royalty, and I bought those for like around 20% of what Mr. Peach had paid for them. And I felt bad about it, but that's what the family had decided. Yep. Um, the, the, uh, the remaining stamps went to an auction, and so they brought an appropriate price stamp. So, and and also, um, it's fun to go to a public auction. I mean, it, as long as you don't fall in, as long as you don't let your enthusiasm get the better of you. I always said, tell people, write down your bids. That doesn't mean you can't exceed them, but at least write down something so that you don't, I mean, there's many times where. You're always going to exceed your bids. Right. You get caught up in the excitement. Or. Or just the guy is pointing too quick, and you don't lower your hand in time, and you know you bid six hundred on the five hundred and fifty dollar item, but you sit there and go, "Well, it's only one bid more." It's like, yes, but if well, there's but, many hands up, sometimes you're the third one recognized, so you're you're two increments over yeah. what your bid is <laughs> yeah. when he recognizes it. Now, it's you shouldn't be embarrassed if you didn't want to bid that price. Oh yeah, just tell the auctioneer, "I'm sorry, I was at." such and such a price and so you the, the, he has to honor that yeah the, you just back that Auc that's now, no problem now most most of the stamp auctioneers are the pub are the actual auctioneers but there have been there have been previous sales like uh, um for many years uh, uh john peters called rumsey sales for instance so he but these oh, people larry brassler called these people have, these, uh, people have yeah. these people have separate licenses from the states yeah. and they are they're bonded so they can't they can't mess around. State of California used to require you to have an auction license, and I had one, and uh, you know it was really super easy to get. But you know, you the people who owned the auction house couldn't call the auction because they didn't have it, and really all it was was they uh, ran a check on you to see if you had ever committed any felonies or anything like that. I mean, it was a really simple license to get. But, uh, yeah, good friend of mine, good friend of the show, Scott also is uh, Larry Brassler. And he used to always call H.R. Harmers. And the cool thing is, is he knew how to talk to people. It's like the, you know, you were talking about the cattle auctions. If you have a good auctioneer, he's entertaining. And that's why they had him, is he was an entertaining auctioneer. It wasn't just numbers flowing out. It wasn't boring. Well, if you, if you want to experience it, just find an estate auction house near you and, and go and just sit and watch for a day and be entertained. And that'll actually just kind of get you over any fear you might have of attending an auction. Well, if you're having fear for attending an auction, uh, stop it. <laughs> But make sure you review your lots. Yeah, make sure you review the lots after you get them, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's one, it's one thing to see them before the sale, and it's another thing to actually see them afterwards. Well, I, and that, that's absolutely true because um, I've seen things that have 
brand new certificates and they they're out there for viewing before the auction and come the end of the auction uh you don't know how many people have handled that item and sometimes items do get damaged in viewing and it wouldn't be it happened to us we there would be many times that uh um the auction house won't take any responsibility no. well it's got a new certificate yeah they, and they'll they'll say well the certification company must have messed up or, yeah. and the viewers generally don't admit um, <laughs> of course not that they damage something they just look at it damage it and then don't bid on it fear, yeah. fear of you break it you buy it yes yeah, what absolutely was, what was it? it was the five dollar uh, stamp we, we got one back and uh, it got returned. The, it was a five dollar Marshall. It was five dollar like Marshall, yeah. Six, and we got it back in uh, the auction company, and said, it had a huge tear in it. It, it. Obviously, somebody had put their stamp tongs through the stamp. They just mistreated it, and they go, uh, "You missed a big, huge tear in the middle of the stamp." And we're sitting here going, "There is no way." that we would have missed this humongous, gigantic tear in the middle of the stamp, unless we just, like, I can't think of an example. of You, when... couldn't, you couldn't even phone it in yeah. to miss, <laughs> miss something that big. You know. But, you know, and, you know it's, it's all about finger pointing after the fact. Yeah. And so, like, oh. I mean, the buyer just says, no, I don't want it. It's got a tear in it. Yeah. And you didn't say there was a tear, so I don't have to buy it. I mean, literally, somebody stabbed it through the middle with stamp tongs, and the auction company came to us and said, "You missed this." And it's like, you know what the answer not. to that is? Yeah, we slab your stamp. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I don't think that's going to occur. <laughs> so, do we have enough time to discuss postal stationery paper colors today? Uh, what time is it? No, I think uh, I think we have to put it off for another week. Let's go. Blue. <laughs> uh, what we should Yellow. do is we should uh, insert one of those videos of the of a husky um, whining. Because you know, they have that the that dog has that special kind of whine. I'll find one. I'll put yeah. that I'll put that in. I'll edit that in. I have a video. All I have to do is ask my dog if she wants to go for a ride in the car. Yeah. <laughs> and she just goes nuts. I have one small little story about uh, the most expensive lot in the in the uh, last gross set, which is the uh, the strip of six of the Scott number two, the ten cent, the so-called rush cover, because it was sent to the Minister of France, um, and by and has a Philadelphia Railroad straight line cancel. The item the item only opened up for about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and it was the book represented by the auction company and a phone bidder. The phone bidder was represented by um, a lady at the auction at the auction house, and she kept saying as it, the price kept going up, and they they went up in ten thousand dollar increments. At about three hundred fifty thousand dollars, she started to say, "We we were listening to the conversation on the floor, and first of all, the bidder was drinking wine of some sort, and his <laughs> wife was there, and uh, but." The lady who took the phone call kept telling him, said, you deserve this lot. You deserve this lot. And so he certainly deserved it because he paid $510,000 for it. <laughs> so that's an, that's, an, that's, an interesting, that's an interesting thing about um, um, actually bidding on the telephone. 
Well, I guess it turns out we did have time for stationary colors, but Albert took that up, so <laughs> never mind. <laughs> Stamp Show here today does have a YouTube channel. We are a creator. We put up excerpts of our podcast. We just put up a fantastic video on Albert's talk on the California Gold Rush issue of the Canal Zone. Please check it out and subscribe to the channel because it helps show us in the searches since we're new. Uh, give it a like, please. Also, that helps us as well. Take a look. Please help the channel grow. We need your help. Nothing on the internet is free, including our phone and internet connections. You can support the podcast by joining the Stamp Show Here Today Club. The cost is $10 for a lifetime membership. Please include your APS number if you are a member, as we are an APS-affiliated club. Your support is greatly appreciated. Our address is P.O. Box 539-309, Henderson, Nevada, 89053. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, episode number 282. This was Tom. This was Cash. This was Scott. This was Mark. This was Albert. This was Becca. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.